0: Turn in your Bible to Psalm 119, Psalm 119. We're continuing, uh, studying what this psalm has to teach us about God's law. And each week we're looking at several verses to see what they teach us. This week we'll be in verses 25 to 28. And each of these verses has, excuse me, some specific applications that we can personally take to heart each week as we walk through this psalm. And as we go, at the same time, we're also learning bigger principles about God's law in general. And in order to do that, we're looking at particular Old Testament laws. Sometimes it might be laws like what we find in the Ten Commandments. But a lot of times we're looking at case laws, particular laws that kind of illustrate what's going on in those Ten Commandments. And we'll be doing that again this morning as well. Follow along as I read Psalm 119, verses 25 to 28. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Well, in verse 25, the psalmist says that his soul clings to the dust. This is an expression of extreme sorrow or humiliation. And as we've seen before, he asks God for life, for spiritual life, life which comes through God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, God promised that he would take care of them and he sent them bread from heaven, manna. And Moses explained later that God was teaching them, he did this to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but instead man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God's word, his promises, are trustworthy and it is life-giving. When Jesus faced temptation in the wilderness, at the beginning of his ministry, he quoted Moses to Satan saying that it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus understood that God's words bring life. We even see it in the very creation of the world. God spoke the creation into existence and brought things to life. So here, when the psalmist is in the extreme condition of sorrow or humiliation, he turns to God for words of life. Now, this could be the humiliation of sorrow for sin. Thomas Manton explains God gives some remembrance of the evil and corrects his people not to complete their justification or to make more satisfaction for God's justice than Christ has made, yet to promote their sanctification. That is, to make sin bitter to them and to vindicate the glory of God, that he's not partial When God brings us low in consideration of our sin, it's with the purpose of making us holy. Sometimes the sorrow, though, could be simply from circumstances that we're going through, in which case we need to remember the promises of God. That's where our help comes from. Manson, again, is encouraging here, too. He says one good way to get comfort is to plead the promise to God in prayer. And he explains it this way. He says, show him his handwriting. God is tender of his word. God wants us to remind him, not that he needs the reminder, but he wants us to say his word back to him, including those promises. Verse 26 then says, When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. And the psalmist again here asks God to teach him his statutes, his law. He recognizes that this is what he needs. This is what will be for his good. But what's interesting is the first phrase, when I told of my ways, the psalmist tells God of his ways. Now, this is maybe partly confession, but it's certainly honest communication of his heart. Not because he's informing God. God already knows. But once the psalmist is able to be honest about his ways, then he can hear God's answer and claim God's promises. Jonathan Edwards, as a young man, made a series of resolutions of how he wanted to live his life. And one of those resolutions that he wrote in response to this verse, and actually from reading a sermon by Thomas Manton on this verse, he wrote this, Resolved to exercise myself in this all my life long, namely, with the greatest openness to declare my ways to God and lay open my soul to him. All my sins, temptations, difficulties, sorrows, fears, hopes, desires, and everything, and every circumstance. If you had a doctor that you felt you could trust and you went to him to diagnose your condition and prescribe a course of action for you, you would wanna be honest with what you were really experiencing. It wouldn't be helpful to you if you remained in denial of what the reality was that you're encountering. In the same way, the psalmist is open and honest with God. John Calvin gives us good advice here for how we should come to God like the psalmist does. So we must not come to him according to our own fantasies, nor must we assert and say, My God, I present myself here before your majesty because I think or suppose that you ought to hear me. That would be foolish and vile arrogance, Calvin says. But rather to say, alas, my good God, it is very true that I am not worthy to come near to your presence. And although it seems to me that I could approach to you, yet I must pull back that foot again. Nevertheless, since you bid for me to come to you, and have commanded me to call upon you, and promised also to hear me. Lo, hear, my God, what makes me so bold, and to not doubt, but to come to you, because I believe your word. And now, O Lord, I stand in no doubt that you will not receive me when I thus build upon your promise. Like the psalmist, be open with God, and tell him your ways. In verse 27, the psalmist says, Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Now, because our minds are affected by sin, we don't naturally understand the way of God's precepts. And so the psalmist asks God to help him understand his law. The goal is understanding, but more than that, obedience Thomas Manton gives this analogy of why we need God's help to understand these spiritual things. He says, all things are seen by a suitable light. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Divine things by a divine light. If beasts would judge of human affairs, they must have the reason of men. If men of divine things, they must have divine illumination. So we need God's help to understand, but God hasn't left us in the dark. He's given us his spirit. Joel Beakey says, every believer has blind spots that hinder his full understanding and appropriation of God's truth. However, the Christian has the great privilege of having God's spirit as his inner teacher. So the psalmist asks God to give him understanding and we should do the same. And then we are to meditate on his wondrous works. And this teaches us more of who God is and more of what God has done for us in Christ. Verse 28 now sounds a lot like verse 25. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. And again, we see the distress of the psalmist here. And it may be because of his sin or because of his circumstances. We really don't know. But either way, the answer, the solution will be found in God's word. In God's word, he's promised us that he corrects us. He corrects his children when they sin. He's promised us that he uses our hard circumstances for our good. He's given us many such promises to cling to. So Calvin writes that all the assurance and certainty which we ought to have in our prayers to God is to look to what he has promised to do. That's where our strength will come from, God's promises. It's not wrong that the psalmist is feeling this way. It would be the right response to sin. And it's an understandable response if it's just difficult circumstances that he's facing, but it's also not a place to stay. So Manton encourages us, a a Christian should neither be humbled to the degree of dejection nor confident to the degree of security, and therefore he is to have a double eye upon God and upon himself, upon his own necessities and upon God's all sufficiency. As we saw before, the Christian should be honest with God about his ways. He should have a right view of himself, but he should also have sight of God and his promises. Charles Spurgeon wrote a commentary on Psalm 119, and in the same year that it was published, he began going through a very difficult time in his life. It was a time of uh, many in the church in England that, he was a part of falling away from the truth. Spurgeon stood strong during that time, but it cost him, cost him most of his friendships. It cost him probably his health and maybe even shortened his life. The time was known as the downgrade controversy. The Baptist Union, of which Spurgeon was a part, and he was a leader, was being infected with doctrinal carelessness and compromise. Spurgeon kind of publicly entered the fight with an article that he wrote, which led to a great uproar within the Baptist Union. I want to read for you the first paragraph of that article. Here's what Spurgeon writes. No lover of the gospel can conceal from himself the fact that the days are evil. We are willing to make a large discount from our apprehensions on the score of natural timidity, the caution of age and the weakness produced by pain. But yet our solemn conviction is that things are much worse in many churches than they seem to be and are rapidly tending downward. Read those newspapers which represent the broad school of dissent and ask yourself, how much farther could they go? What doctrine remains to be abandoned? What other truth to be the object of contempt? A new religion has been initiated, which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements. And on this plea, usurps pulpits which were erected for gospel preaching. The atonement is scouted. The inspiration of scripture is derided. The Holy Spirit is degraded into an influence. The punishment of sin is turned into fiction. The resurrection into a myth. And yet these enemies of our faith expect us to call them brethren and maintain a confederacy with them. Now, Spurgeon found himself in a very small minority. Eventually, he led his church to leave the Baptist Union. The Union then took a vote to censure him, a vote that passed with almost 100 in favor and only five opposed, standing with Spurgeon and defending him. The union then adopted a compromise doctrinal statement, which was very weak. And Spurgeon, even though he was no longer actually part of the union, spoke out against it. The statement was approved by the Baptist Union by a vote of 2,000 to 7. The motion seconding the statement was made by Spurgeon's own brother. And Spurgeon... Already suffering from a number of physical difficulties died within a few years of these events. Now, that background makes Spurgeon's comments on Psalm 119, verse 28, very poignant. One wonders whether he maybe even opened his own commentary during the controversy and read what he had written. So here's what he wrote about the psalmist in verse 28 of Psalm 119. He was dissolving away in tears. The solid strength of his constitution was turning to liquid as if molten by the furnace heat of his afflictions. Heaviness of soul is a killing thing. And when it abounds, it threatens to turn life into a long death in which a man seems to drop away in a perpetual drip of grief. Tears are the distillation of the heart. When a man weeps, He wastes away his soul. Some of us know what great heaviness means, for we have been brought under its power again and again, and often have we felt ourselves to be poured out like water and near to being like water spilt upon the ground, never again to be gathered up. There is one good point in this downcast state, for it is better to be melted with grief than to be hardened by impenitence. Here's Spurgeon's tomb. The Bible that you see carved there in the middle is open to 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. How is Spurgeon able to finish well, to keep the faith? Well, that open Bible is the answer. God strengthened him for the fight according to his word. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. If we want to be people who are strengthened for the difficult times in which we live and the hard circumstances that are sure to come, we must be people of the word. And that's why we are working to understand God's law through this series. And again, this week, what I want to do is I want us to take a look at the case law before we get to the principle about God's law. So turn with me this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, and we're going to look at the first four verses. In these verses, we find a case law about divorce. Now remember what the case laws are. They are particular applications of more general laws to particular situations. So this case about divorce won't tell us everything we need to know about divorce. It won't cover every situation. It's very specific. And there's a lot we can learn from it, but it's one particular application to one particular situation, and it's intended to illustrate for us how to apply God's general laws to specific circumstances. Follow along as I read Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, All right, I'm going to take a few minutes to explain the background here and what the intent of the law is, but then we're going to go to the New Testament and see what happens with this law by that point in time. And that'll help us to understand how we apply it today. And the point isn't just about this divorce law, but it's giving us an example of how we should apply God's general laws to particular situations. Now, we've talked about how God's law was in the world before it was written down at Mount Sinai. God's moral law doesn't ever change. But there are applications of that law that develop after the entrance of sin into the world. Laws regarding divorce are some of those applications. Once sin is in the world, then marriages fall apart, adultery happens, abuse happens. What happens to the woman who's left behind by a sinful, uncaring husband? Well, God introduces laws regarding divorce, not because he wants divorce to happen. No, it's because he wants to regulate divorce in order to minimize the damage that's being done. So instead of letting a hard-hearted spouse do more extensive damage, God introduces protections for the other spouse. Here's the background to help us understand the marriage situation in Israel. First of all, in those days, there was a bride price that would be paid by the groom or his family to the bride. This gave her a good amount of money that was her own to use or to invest. So for example, the woman in Proverbs 31 who runs a business is likely using her own capital from her bride price to carry out that business. When Abraham's servant found Rebekah for Isaac, he gave her silver and gold and gave gifts to her family. Now, if a divorce happens and the woman is not at fault, well, then she takes the bride price with her. In a sense, it's like an insurance policy for her. Second, remember what we saw previously when we looked at Exodus 21 about laws about slavery? There was part of those laws that was dealing with a slave wife. The slave, for the slave wife, the, the master husband is responsible to provide three things. Food that is as good as what the rest of the family has, clothing and protection, and marital relations. If he fails to provide those things, in other words, if he significantly mistreats her, then she's free to leave. She doesn't take a bride price with her because there wasn't one in the first place since she's a slave. But it gives us the principle of mistreatment as a legitimate reason for her to leave the marriage. And the third thing, background-wise, is that the normal pattern when a couple got married was that the groom built onto his father's house or built nearby on the family land. So the bride came to live with the groom's family in their own space, but on the groom's family land. So when a divorce happened, who would leave? Well, the woman would be the one to leave. Now, with that understanding in mind, Look at the particular case we have here in Deuteronomy 24. In the first marriage, the husband has found some indecency in her. That seems to indicate that there is some objective fault in her. The woman is to blame for the situation that has led to the divorce. We have the husband in both cases initiating the divorce. But remember, this is case law, so just because it happens that way in this case doesn't mean that it couldn't be the wife who initiates the divorce in a different case. But in the second marriage, we're told that the latter man hates her and so divorces her. Or, this case gives us an alternate scenario, the second husband dies. So if he divorces her because, as the text says, he comes to hate her, that seems to be a subjective choice on his part, not that she did something worthy of blame. So now she's forced to leave the second marriage. And the particular case here is designed to do one thing. It regulates whether or not the first husband may remarry the woman. That's what this case is designed to regulate. And the law says, no, he may not. Why? What's going on here? Well, the two scenarios here where the husband decides to divorce her or he dies, both result in the woman being out of the marriage but keeping the bride price. The idea is that the first husband would, in theory, have profited from the marriage because he kept the original bride price since she was to blame for the marriage dissolving he cannot now go back and behave as if she's fit to marry when he's already profited from her not being fit to be married to. So this prevents the first husband from using the woman for his own gain. And it therefore protects her from being used in this way. There's a couple of things we need to take note of to kind of help us further understand what the intent is here. The indecency that the husband finds, the first husband, tells us that there should be valid grounds for divorce. In the eyes of the law, she's to blame, which is why she doesn't get to take the bride price with her. So there's a legal judgment made that determines that the divorce is legitimate on these grounds. We learn the same thing from the Exodus 21 passage about the divorce of the slave wife too. There, we see specifically that neglect is a legitimate ground for divorce. And if neglect is a legitimate ground for divorce, then of course, significant abuse would be a legitimate ground as well. James Jordan comments on Exodus 21. He says, the occasion for the master's mistreatment of his slave wife is his marriage to a second woman. Clearly, however, mistreatment of the woman for any reason would be grounds for divorce. Those who insist that the wife should remain with her husband even if he beats her and otherwise abuses her are completely out of line with scripture at this point. Now, I'm going to emphasize this. We're not talking about some minor mistreatment. We're talking about significant abuse or mistreatment here. The certificate of divorce that we see in Deuteronomy 24 is intended to give the woman permission to remarry. Okay, it's for her good. It it secures a means of being provided for. Now, let's look at the principle about God's law for this week. And here's the principle that I want to lead us to. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus confirms God's law. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus confirms God's law. And to see this, of course, we're going to go turn to that sermon. So go with me to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 31 and 32 in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount begins with what we call the Beatitudes, general principles of how God's people are to live, what will make for a blessed or flourishing life. And then in verses 17 to 20, as we saw several weeks ago, Jesus says that he did not come to abolish God's law, but to to fulfill it, to fill it up to its full measure. And then Jesus goes on to give some specific examples. In other words, what he's doing is like giving case laws. He's illustrating how the Christian should live according to God's law. Now follow along with me in verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, the first thing to notice here is the difference between Jesus's language in these verses and what he says back in verses 17 to 20. If you look back at verses 17 to 20, Jesus says that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The iota and the dot are the smallest parts of Hebrew writing. Jesus, in those verses, is speaking specifically about the written law that God revealed to his people. But in our verses here, in verses 31 and 32, Jesus refers to what was said. Throughout this section, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He's not talking about the written law. He's talking about what has been said about that law by the Pharisees. What Jesus is doing throughout this section is showing how the interpretation of the Pharisees has deviated from God's written law. Jesus is correcting their misinterpretation. He's restoring the law of God to its original intent. He's not doing away with the law. He's establishing it. He's confirming it. Jesus is making a contrast of persons, He's not setting himself against the written word of God. He is setting himself against the word of man that was misinterpreting it. And also notice that Jesus isn't relaxing the law at all. In fact, one reason he gives that the the current in his day practice of no-fault divorce is wrong is that it leads to adultery. In other words, he's taking adultery seriously. Now, in this day, the Hillel school of the Pharisees taught that a man was permitted to divorce his wife for any reason. Could be because she talked too loud. Could be because she burned the dinner. Could be because he just found another woman to be more beautiful than her. Any reason. The Pharisees looked at Deuteronomy 24 and the lesson that they took from it was there must be a certificate of divorce. So, whatever reason... As long as you give her a certificate of divorce, it's permissible. But Jesus is saying that the Pharisees had seriously distorted God's law about divorce. Now, it might help us to see another passage where Jesus teaches about divorce. And you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. This is Matthew 19. Some Pharisees come to Jesus and they test him. And the way they do that is by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In other words, they're asking about any cause divorce, which was their current teaching. And here's what Jesus says. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then the Pharisees respond to him. They say, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus answers that question by saying, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. See, Jesus emphasizes the sanctity of marriage, but the Pharisees are focused on the certificate of divorce, how to be free to get out of the marriage. Jesus has a high regard for scripture, but the Pharisees twist the words of scripture to fit their desires. Jesus upholds the prohibition in the law regarding remarriage, but the Pharisees take a very loose interpretation of divorce, which Jesus says actually ends in adultery. Now, at every turn in this sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus assumes that the Old Testament law still has its authority. When the Pharisees ask him about divorce law, for instance, in Matthew 19, Jesus implies that they should already know the answer. Do you remember what he says? Have you not read? Notice the difference. It's not have you not heard. It's have you not read. Jesus is pointing them to the written law. How would they know? Because they should know the law of God as it's written. Jesus is not innovating. He's not making things up. He's not changing things. He's confirming the law. And when he's answering their question in Matthew 19, Jesus cites Genesis 2 as his authority. It shows, he says, God's intent for marriage. One man, one woman joined as one flesh with nothing separating them because they've been joined by God. In Jesus' teaching, According to, according to the way Jesus interprets it, Genesis 2 gives us God's law. What we have in Deuteronomy 24, then, is the case law illustration of how Moses dealt with divorce. Divorce was already a fact. Moses has to do something with it. And so divorce gets regulated. It gets regulated in a way to do as little damage as possible, to protect the victims as much as possible, and to promote holiness according to God's design. When Jesus says that Moses permitted or allowed divorce because of their hard-heartedness, there are a couple of things that we should notice. First of all, that word permitted does not have any overtones of disapproval. It it doesn't say that Moses grudgingly allowed this. It's simply reporting that Moses authorized it. So the spouse who is abused or severely mistreated or abandoned does not need to feel that they are doing something wrong by getting the divorce. Second, Jesus says this whole situation is due to their hard-heartedness. In other words, it's their unwillingness to love the way that they should that leads to the situation that Moses has to regulate. But from the beginning, it wasn't this way, Jesus says. In the garden, before sin entered the picture, divorce would never have occurred. We also need to note what Jesus says about the proper grounds for divorce. Jesus limits it to what our ESV translation calls sexual immorality. This is not the best translation of this word. Some English versions call it fornication. The word often does have the meaning of sexual immorality, but it is broader than that. The same thing is true of the phrase, some indecency in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And these two terms, the one from the Old Testament Hebrew, the one from the New Testament Greek, are essentially identical in the scope of how they're used. Greg Bonson explains that they are used for more general abhorrence or generic misbehavior of a serious kind. Sometimes the word refused to human excrement Sometimes it's shameful public disgrace, perversity, rebellious dishonor for authority. In other words, when you take the scope of what that word is, is, is talking about, it describes something that causes revulsion in some way. Behavior that is seriously out of order. Treating someone in a significantly wrong way recognizably way out of line. So the definition of the word itself is not restricted to sexual immorality, but it does signify something very serious, severe maltreatment of some kind. But it's not just the word itself that tells us that what we're looking at is not just limited to sexual immorality. Because when Paul gives instructions about divorce. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, that desertion is a legitimate reason for divorce. He says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. What that means when it says is not enslaved, that, that the, the believing spouse who has been deserted is free to remarry. They're not restricted from remarriage. That's what it means when it's talking about being enslaved. The deserted spouse is free to remarry because the divorce was legitimate. So unless we want to pit Jesus and Paul against each other, Jesus' words must include something like desertion. It's not just, what we would use the term sexual immorality to be talking about. Now, at the same time, everything that Jesus does, the the whole way that he handles this situation, screams that he takes marriage and divorce seriously. Way more seriously than the Pharisees do. Jesus points back to God's design. No-fault divorce is an abomination in Jesus' eyes. But provision is made for the spouse that is deserted or abused or severely maltreated. I think the application for today is clear. God takes marriage seriously. The standard for every marriage is one man, one woman, one flesh joined by God for life. And the one who causes a disruption to that, a separation, is under God's judgment. But in this fallen world, sin happens. And God makes provision for the abused, the abandoned, the mistreated. When a marriage relationship breaks down like this, the church is in a position in which it has to make a judgment call. Is divorce a legitimate option or no. If the situation doesn't warrant divorce, then a spouse who goes through with it rightly faces church discipline. But on the other hand, if the church determines that divorce is a legitimate option, then there should be no cloud left hanging over the abused or deserted person. If the situation warrants divorce, then for the person who's on the receiving end, divorce is not a sin. And it would be wrong for a brother or sister in Christ to treat it as such. I want to be very clear. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. Marriage is serious. Divorce is serious. The whole point of what Jesus says on this subject in the Sermon on the Mount is to correct the Pharisees because they were too loose with divorce. But our standard has to be God's word. We should make every effort to judge as God himself does. Now I'd like to finish by pointing us to how God describes his relationship with his people in terms of marriage and divorce. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant between him and Israel. He called it a marriage covenant, but Israel was unfaithful to him. They repeatedly ran after other gods, described as spiritual adultery. They abused and mistreated God over and over he took them back but eventually he let them go and he describes this in terms of divorce god says that he is divorcing his people it wasn't god who broke the covenant it was israel but eventually god allowed the divorce now in the new testament god again made a covenant between him and his people This time the covenant was with the church and the man who would represent the church in this new covenant is Jesus himself. So God the Father makes this new marriage covenant with his people and it's Jesus who upholds the other end of the covenant. So this new covenant will never be broken. Jesus will never be unfaithful to God. When you place your faith in Jesus, when you become part of the church, the people of God, you are coming under the headship of Christ. He is your covenant head. We are the bride of Christ. He's our covenant head. He's our representative. And since he will never break the covenant, you're secure. You never have to worry that this marriage might fall apart. You never need to worry that he might be unfaithful you have the ultimate security in him because he's faithful let's close in prayer lord as we have explored what you have to say about your law this morning there are there are certain things here as we as we listen to these verses in psalm 119 that hopefully are an encouragement no matter where we're at there are some i'm sure here this morning who are struggling with being down or depressed or we're anxious about things. Maybe it's because of sin in their lives. Maybe it's just because of difficult circumstances. And these verses that we've seen in Psalm 119 this morning speak to that. We pray that you would give us life according to your word. And then as we've gone on to talk about these particular case laws, and as we look at the, the, the case laws about divorce and marriage and what Jesus has to say about that, We recognize that marriage is a good design of yours, that you take it very seriously. And our culture today doesn't take it seriously at all. The church should be different. We should be upholding what you uphold. I pray that you would enable us to do that at the same time. I think some of us have come from backgrounds where we just took all divorce and lumped it under the heading of sin. And your word clearly teaches that that's not the case either. And so sometimes we've probably been guilty of a judgmental spirit or attitude toward those who maybe have by no fault of their own experienced a legitimate divorce. I pray that you would correct our thinking, that we would think rightly about these things so that we can function as the family of God in the way that you've designed a family to function. And we are particularly thankful this morning for the faithfulness that you have promised to exhibit to us. If the covenant was up to us, we would break it. But this new covenant, you uphold both ends of it. Jesus, as our covenant head, is faithful for us. And that gives us security. We want to worship you and to honor you and praise you for that this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.